TorahCafe.com. Welcome to our sixth lesson of the great debates that we've gone over the last five weeks of throughout Jewish history, different debates that the Jewish community was entangled with. But the sixth and final class is a very local debate. It's about the public menorah. So when I was reading and preparing the, the course, and I said, public menorah, Pittsburgh, who wants to hear from me? I only showed up in Pittsburgh in uh, 2004. That's a good uh, almost uh, 20 years after the case. Why don't we get the original players to come here and be a part of the, of the uh, class? And some of the classes, I was more familiar with the material before I prepared the course. Some of them I had to do extra preparation. And I figured, why do extra preparation if someone else already knows the material? <laughs> and uh, let's bring them in. So I called, uh, Charlie's part was part of this uh, participant in the class. I said, Charlie, who's a partner at uh, uh, Margolis and Edelson, and he was a part of one of the team that represented uh, the Allegheny County, but he represented Chabad, who was an um, intervener at the, at the case. And so he, he, he was part of the legal team that rep um, represented Chabad. And I said, hey, I know John. He's a nice guy. I'm sure even though uh, he was on the other side of the team at the, uh, at the case, but, you know, we're all on one big team here. So I asked uh, John, who's a chairperson now of the Greater uh, Pittsburgh ACLU Legal Committee, to, who, re who was on the team representing the uh, ACLU at the time, if he would, if he would come in and share his uh, side and his part of the, of the story. And they both were eagerly agreed to join. So I decided to change around the last class and do it a little different format. Instead of me lecturing what I think was the case, why don't we do a retrial here and let you be the judge? So originally I, f I figured it this way. They'll present 20 minutes each their side, and then I will share the ruling. So I opened up the, I went to look at the ruling, and I started reading, and I said, I thought Talmud was complicated. <laughs> there are nine justices with nine opinions, so they got a majority out on some, majority on the other. There's, there's, a, there's this majority for this element of the case. There's that majority for that element of the case. I started getting dizzy, and I said, I'd rather learn Talmud than figure this out. I said, Charlie and John, what do we do about that? So Charlie starts saying what he thinks the ruling is. John was saying what he thinks the ruling is. I said, okay, so we even have a debate what the ruling is. So we're going to go to a double debate today. We'll debate what went on in court before the ruling, and then each of them will share their perspective of what the ruling is. That being said, uh, they both agree, though, that the menorah is up in front of the city, council, uh, city county building. Um, so what, I think it's more what, what the ruling means is what they're debating, not whether the menorah can go up or not. But we'll hear from them. So I just want to first, before introducing them, I just want to do a little basic history of what this whole men uh, public menorah came from. There is a mitzvah on Hanukkah to light a menorah. We're familiar with that mitzvah. We all do it at home. But there's something unique about this mitzvah that is not so much emphasized in other holidays. And that is that the mitzvah is, and the purpose of the mitzvah is to publicize the miracle. What's in Hebrew referred to as pirsum, pirsume nisa, to publicize the miracle of Hanukkah. That it's not just enough to celebrate, as let's say Pesach, where we do in our homes, and uh, other holidays that we, sukkah, we do in our, at, at, in our backyards. 
But the mitzvah of Chanukah is meant to celebrate the holiday <coughs> by publicizing the miracle. How do we do that? By lighting a menorah in a way that everyone can see it. So the original mitzvah was to light it in the window or in the outside, the doorway, so everyone outside can, can see it. And the time to light the menorah was when there's people still on the street. And if you came home too late, then technically you have missed out an important component of the mitzvah, which is to light the menorah at a time that others will view it. Now, because there's people in your house too, so we do light the menorah even if it's late at night, as long as there's people awake in the house because you're publicizing the miracle to those that are in your home. But the main concept of this mitzvah was to publicize it to the world. As a result, we don't make a seder in shul unless you're looking to host people that don't have where to have a seder. You don't make a sukkah in shul unless the shul wants a place for people to eat and they want to make a kiddush. But there's no mitzvah to make a sukkah in the shul. There's no mitzvah to make a seder in shul. The mitzvah of the menorah, though, is to light the menorah in shul in the evening as well. So if you go to shul on, during Hanukkah for evening services, you'll see that before the end of the service, they light the menorah. And that, again, was part of publicizing the miracle. Now, taking that all into consideration, and Chabad has this idea that we want to try to reach as many Jews as we can to give them the opportunity to join in in a celebration, and, and who doesn't want to celebrate? So Chabad rabbis are sitting in the 1970s and trying to figure out how do we do this mitzvah publicizing the miracle in the best way? Because unfortunately, on a Monday afternoon, the shuls aren't packed anymore, as they were in the shtetl. So we're not publicizing the miracle anymore by lighting it in the shul. Some people light it in their windows. There was a period of time in Eastern Europe where the menorah moved indoors because it was dangerous to light it in the windows. So how do we go about publicizing the miracle, A, B, how do we reach as many Jews as we can and let them know, you know what, Hanukkah is here. This is 1970s, not 2017. How do we make sure that people who are not even bothered to look at the calendar to know what Hanukkah is, that they're familiar with Hanukkah? So one Chabad rabbi in Philadelphia, as we'll see in the, mo- in, in the video in a moment, figures out, let's put up a public menorah, do the menorah on the streets. And from there, it became to huge public menorahs. And before you know it, this idea takes on. One Chabad rabbi shares with another Chabad rabbi, and there's menorahs going in public places. And then, all of a sudden, someone says, hey, public menorah and public space, is this, a, is this even constitutionally allowed, or, are we, uh, or is this in a uh, breaking the, uh, the, uh, de- um, the separation of church and state? Pittsburgh is the place where that uh, disagreement begins. It has since gone to many other cities, but Pittsburgh is where the, the, the uh, beginning of that situation, and that's where we begin the story of, of uh, the litigation of whether we can have the menorah published publicly or not. So let's take a look at this video that gives us the history, and then we'll go to the case. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land, cries a biblical verse cast into the copper and tin side of America's Liberty Bell. 
What better spot to celebrate Hanukkah? The commemoration of ancient Jewry's liberation from religious oppression. The symbolism was not lost on Rabbi Shemtov, Chabad's senior emissary to Philadelphia, who made Liberty Bell the scene of the nation's first public menorah lighting. That was Hanukkah of 1974, and Rabbi Shemtov heeded the revolutionary call issued a year earlier by the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who had urged his followers to take Hanukkah rituals to families, streets, and cities across the nation in a bold campaign to awaken a largely assimilated American Jewry to their rich heritage. But it was Rabbi Drizen, Chabad's emissary to San Francisco, who in 1975 introduced America's first giant menorah in a public venue. That year, the nine-foot statue of an ancient Greek deity of victory that towers over San Francisco's Union Square was rivaled by a 25-foot, eight-branch symbol of Jewish victory over the ancient Greeks. Over a thousand Jews showed up, and the idea of celebrating Hanukkah en masse via giant public menorahs caught on at the speed of light, spreading to malls, parks, squares, and hundreds of locations worldwide, and inspiring endless creativity. While the menorah events were popular with the Jewish rank and file, the initiative ignited a furious debate among some of the Jewish leadership, threatening to douse the public Hanukkah flame altogether. The Jewish-American community soon found itself deeply divided. In particular, Chabad was accused of undermining the principle of the separation of church and state by placing a religious symbol in a public venue. The clause in the First Amendment that dealt with no establishment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And they said that means no state religion or state involvement in religion. Now we saw a shift and people said, wait a minute, there's also another clause. And that clause says or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The menorah was dragged from one courtroom to the next and was struck down in cities in Vermont, Chicago, Iowa, Georgia, New York, and elsewhere, while being simultaneously upheld in other localities. Nat Lewin, one of America's foremost attorneys, was the star of the legal struggle in support of the public menorah. Well, the legal challenges really began in 1987 and 88. Uh, when the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, the American Jewish Congress, the American Jewish Committee, uh, and various other civil liberties organizations decided that they were going to challenge the menorah being put up. It quickly became clear that the Hanukkah display disproportionately upset Jewish rather than non-Jewish Americans. It was a major disaster if we came before a Jewish judge because the Jewish judges ruled against the menorah. Chabad's public menorah even cast its glow in the United States Supreme Court. In 1989, the United States Supreme Court ruled in favor of the menorah in a case brought by the ACLU against the county of Allegheny. And in 2002, it ruled in favor of Chabad in Southern Ohio against the city of Cincinnati allowing an 18-foot menorah in Fountain Square. The public menorah has become standard fare in many cities, and it is lit annually on the White House lawn and within the White House as well. 
but the debate has far from subsided. And I continue to get every Hanukkah, I get two, three, or even more uh, requests from local Chabad Shluchim who tell me that the local authorities have been persuaded by some local organization that they should not allow the menorah to go up. Some four decades has elapsed since the famously cracked Liberty Bell first met its menorah neighbor. The argument still persists as to whether the public menorah is a threatening crack in our nation's liberty. But what is so threatening about a menorah proclaiming the festival of light on a street corner? Could there be more to this debate? We're going to now move to the debate, the law part of the debate. And as I said earlier, after that, I will share some of the Judaic um, element to it. In other words, I'm not the expert in what the law says. That's why we have Charlie and John here. Um, but I want to share afterwards some thoughts of why is it so important to have a menorah in public property? Why is Chabad, in addition to what I said earlier about the mitzvah, what really can be seen behind that idea? So the structure will be as follows. We'll give John and Charlie each 20 minutes to share their perspective on the case, followed by five minutes of each on what the ruling was, has, how they saw it, and then I'll take it from there, followed by um, any questions and reflections from John and Charlie. So I think we'll start with John, the chairperson of the Greater Pittsburgh ACLU's legal committee and a member of the, uh, legal, com uh, the legal team uh, representing the ACLU at the case. Thank you. I want to thank Rabbi Altine and Charlie for inviting me to participate in this program. Charlie and I have talked about this case so often in the past 25 years, and I think we'll continue. And, and, and as you see, the, the debate about this is still continuing. Since this is a CLE program, I do want to place a legal structure on the program. At some subsequent program, it might be very interesting to talk about the political considerations of how to structure this case, how we chose the plaintiffs, all of the uh, dynamics that went into trying to minimize uh, hostility to uh, one religious group or another. Because I, I can tell you, uh, myself and the two other lawyers, who worked on this case from my side, received so much hate mail, death threats, and the things that we did to protect our clients and to try to minimize that is another discussion. So what I'd like to do, and our time is brief, is one to give you a historical legal perspective in terms of what is the root basis for challenging religious displays Two is I'm going to provide a legal analytical framework for looking at these questions. Then I'm going to talk about the specific facts that were presented in the Pittsburgh and Allegheny County case. And then a brief analysis of those facts to the legal structure and the way that we look at these. But in order to frame the question, I want to separate all public displays from Minerot from the erection of a menorah on the seat of government. 
in the building in which citizens are compelled to attend to conduct business with their government, whether it be the mayor, the city council, citizens who are compelled to go to the building to pay taxes, or since the city county building and the courthouse where the nativity scene display was are also courthouses where citizens are compelled to go by force of subpoena to testify as witnesses or to appear as parties in a case before the court. So I want to focus specifically on the display of a unique religious symbol on the seat of government and the arguments address it from that perspective. And the question before the court can be seen very clearly by Rabbi Altine's introduction. The lighting of a menorah is a mitzvah. It is a religious commandment. And what is the role of government in performing one religion's religious commandments? And as we will talk about later when we discuss the facts, the evidence at trial showed that a particular spiritual leader had directed his followers to place these menorahs in prominent public spots such as the seats of government, and that by doing so, they would expedite the arrival of the Messiah because the performance of every mitzvah helps to bring the Messiah. So that we see this as a religious mission now that is entwined with the function and location of government. In terms of the historical context, we are talking about a very brief text in the Constitution, a mere 16 words. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That language did not come easily to the founders of the Constitution. There were many different drafts of the First Amendment that were considered and rejected, some of which may have been more supportive of the position advocated by those in favor of placing religious symbols on our central government buildings. For example, one draft that was rejected said, Congress shall make no law establishing any particular denomination or religion in preference to another. That was rejected by the Congress. Uh, Congress shall make no law establishing articles of faith or mode of worship or prohibiting the free exercise of religion. And another draft, Congress shall make no law touching religion or infringing the rights of conscience. What the courts have been forced to do over the past 200 plus years, but it really started in the 1940s, is to interpret the 16 words that were finally adopted. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. 
This is an anti-majoritarian provision in the Constitution. We didn't need a Bill of Rights to protect minorities or majorities. We needed it to protect the minorities from subjugation by the majority. Early thoughts about uh, what those words may have meant, uh, Jefferson, we all know, viewed the Establishment Clause as creating a wall of separation between church and state. Yet it was Thomas Jefferson, our third president, who hosted the first iftar dinner during Ramadan in the White House. Andrew Jackson, who was viewed as having been a very religious president, in spite of some of the policies he pursued, actually uh, refused a request by clergy to halt Sunday mail delivery because he viewed that it was his view that that would uh, violate the Establishment Clause to stop delivering mail on Sundays. It wasn't until Martin Van Buren became president that we stopped having uh, Sunday mail delivery. Now, we have two different clauses, the Establishment Clause and Free Exercise Clause, which were pointed out in the video. One is a limitation on government action. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. The other is an affirmative protection of the individual to the free exercise of religion. And so what the goal in the First Amendment was, was to separate government, which has no religious rights at all. Government is, has no religious rights. The right of religion to engage in religious activity is an individual right. And by saying individual, of course, I recognize it can be exercised collectively by groups. But there was no government right to engage in religion. Sometimes there is conflict between the two provisions and the courts are forced to balance the free exercise rights with the Establishment Clause. And so in the court cases, we see a constant struggle to draw lines and to balance different uh, legitimate interests. And so over the course of time, to set guidelines on how to judge cases that present questions of religion and government, there have been various uh, analytical frameworks that have developed because there's a recognition no right is absolute. Even those that have lang absolute language, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. And yet we all have come to accept that the First Amendment does not give an individual the right to call out fire in a crowded movie theater. So that we have different analytical uh, structures uh, for uh, analyzing these cases. And we start out with some basic principles. Religion is a private matter between an individual and his preferred institution of worship. These are all derived from Supreme Court cases. <coughs> government must be neutral 
in matters of religious theory, doctrine, and practice. Government may not confer its imprimatur of approval on religious sects or practices. Government may not convey the appearance of religious favoritism on the courts. Thus, the Establishment Clause is violated when the power, prestige, and financial support of government is placed behind a particular religious belief. And finally, what I want to say by way of introduction of basic principles, a challenge practice violates the Constitution if it creates a symbolic link between government and religion. Now the analytical frameworks. The first one, which is the most common one, is known as the Lemon Test, which comes from a case called Lemon versus Kurtzman. The court announced a three-pronged test for determining whether a particular practice or, or law violates the Establishment Clause. A violation of any one of these prongs means the challenged activity is unconstitutional. First, the challenged activity to pass constitutional muster, the challenged activity must have a secular purpose. That is a non-religious purpose. Two, is it is a violation of the Constitution if the primary effect of the activity is to advance or inhibit religion. Three, if there is excessive entanglement between the government and religion, the challenged activity is unconstitutional. Justice O'Connor, who sat on the Supreme Court that decided the Allegheny County case, had her own little twist on that case, which we refer to as the endorsement test. And she would ask whether a challenge practice could be perceived by a reasonable person as governmental endorsement of religion. And Justice Kennedy back then, I'm not sure whether he would still adhere to this test, was more interested in determining whether the challenge practice entailed an element of coercion or proselytizing. And if there was coercive activity or proselytizing, he would find the practice unconstitutional. Now let's look at the facts of this particular case. And I'm going back now to the 1986 time period, which is when we filed the lawsuit. The menorah outside of the city county building was a city display. It was not Chabad's display. The evidence at trial was that the menorah was one component of the city's Christmas display. The city's Christmas display consisted of a 45-foot Christmas tree on the portico steps of the city county building. On the tree itself was some sign that was erected after the ACLU wrote a letter to the mayor complaining about the menorah that said something about uh, the lights of the season, may it uh, celebrate liberty. That was on the tree itself. Off to the side a little, and we saw a picture, and I know Charlie has a photograph he may want to pass around. 
uh, just so you could see, it's close, but it's off to the side, was an 18-foot uh, menorah. The evidence of trial established uh, without question that the menorah is a religious symbol, and it represents a miracle, which is a divine act. There is no such thing as a secular miracle. <laughs> to be a miracle makes it religious. Celebrated, and this is a miracle that is celebrated by one religion only. It is not a secular holiday that is in, uh, embraced by the population at large. I know of no non-Jew that celebrates Hanukkah except perhaps in a mixed religion marriage or union where all holidays are celebrated. The display of the menorah on the city county building was advocated by a particular group of Jews who viewed the public lighting as a religious obligation directed by their spiritual leader. The menorah was lit each night by a rabbi who recited the traditional prayer. So we actually have a religious service associated with the display of the menorah. Uh, the testimony of one Jewish plaintiff uh, during the trial was that he was offended by the menorah display because it was by having the menorah there, it was equating Hanukkah and Christmas that have nothing to do with each other besides their temporal location in the month of December. Next to the city county building, and I know we're not really addressing it per se here, but it puts the whole, gives the whole context of the legal fight in the county courthouse, which served the same purpose for the county as the city county building did for the city, was a large nativity scene, a, a uh, statues and a display depicting the birth of Jesus. So it's the typical manger scene. On top of the manger was a winged angel holding a banner that said, Gloria in excelsis Deo, uh, glory, to be, uh, glory to God in the highest, or something similar to that. Just as the, the menorah had a religious service associated with it at the city-county building, if the nativity scene was dedicated to the POWs and MIAs from the Vietnam War. And they did this by inviting the families of the POWs and the MIAs to bring pictures of their loved ones to place around the baby Jesus, and then they held a prayer service. That's the displays that were at issue. Now let's uh, look at it in terms of the lemon test and the legal analysis. Remember, the first prong to pass, to pass constitutional muster was the display has to have a, a secular purpose. Now there's a big difference between Hanukkah and Christmas, other than the fact that one's a Christian holiday and one's a Jewish. <laughs> Christmas is a national holiday. There's no getting around that. And the governed courts have always recognized that the government has a legitimate interest in recognizing 
the secular elements of a secular holiday. Hanukkah is not a secular holiday. It is a religious holiday that is celebrated by the performance of religious commandments using religious symbols. So here we have the city who has taken a Jewish religious symbol and made it part of its Christmas display. They have used and appropriated a religious symbol for a purpose that it was not intended to be used for. The mayor wrote the ACLU a letter expressing the desire to support those Jews and Christians supporting the display. Well, if you're supporting uh, members of religious groups, you're not secular. You are sectarian. Also, in terms of the secular purpose, it showed the government's decision to accommodate one faction of the Jewish uh, religious community to the exclusion of the, I don't want to give numbers, but the other faction that opposed the display of the menorah as a Christmas display or on government buildings or just in terms of taking something that has deep religious value to them and making it into like a plastic Jesus by uh, placing it publicly and for all to see and it it minimized the religious value to a number of individuals by posting it in a non-religious place and using it for a non-religious purpose. Was the second prong, was the primary effect to advance or inhibit religion. We use the objective reasonable person standard. What would the average citizen think seeing the religious symbol of one religious group, Judaism, placed on the center of government? Placement on the seat of government links Judaism with the government in a manner signifying their alliance. It makes those who adhere to that religious group feel like they are an insider, and for all people whose religious symbols are either not displayed or are misappropriated by government into believing that they are outsiders. Would a Muslim, a Hindu, a Buddhist, who had to go to the courthouse to conduct business with his or her elected official, feel more comfortable going into a building that was devoid of religious symbols or that displayed prominently the religious symbols of only two religions. The fact that there was a secular symbol of the Christian holiday, the Christmas tree, and a religious symbol of the Jewish holiday, the menorah, doesn't cure the problem by having two different religions because the government can't show favoritism to one or multiple religions in order to stay true to the First Amendment. Okay, finally, the third prong was the excessive entanglement. Here, we saw from the video that there's a dispute within the Jewish community about the display of Minerot on public buildings. 
the city acceded to the request of one faction as opposed to all and accommodating all and therefore the government got itself entangled into a secular debate and was taking sides in that debate thereby becoming um, excessively entangled with religion. Those were the primary arguments that were raised in the court as I recall. I may have overstated, uh, emphasized some as opposed to others and we're only speaking very briefly. I've already got my uh, five minute warning uh, and I welcome <coughs> questions later on and I'm sure Charlie will as well and we maybe have an opportunity to have some actual exchanges or uh, present answers to questions after his presentation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Charlie, we'll afternoon. Uh, thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, John. I have a lot of respect for John and the ACLU and the opinions uh, he expressed, uh, although I disagree with <laughs> most of the opinions. Uh, it's hard to believe that in uh, four days it'll be 31 years from the time that the ACLU filed suit against the city of Pittsburgh in order to try to ban the menorah from a pluralistic ecumenical holiday display from the steps of City Hall, a public forum. Uh, the display, as John said, was a tree, a menorah, and a sign salute to liberty. It wasn't exactly on the, on the uh, tree. There was a platform underneath <coughs> it, and it clearly referred to the lights of liberty and clearly referred to both the tree, the Christmas tree, and, and the uh, menorah, the lights of the menorah. So this is one of the exhibits from the trial. I happen to be the trial attorney, and against me on the other side were all my friends, John Pashinsky, Jim Lever, Roz Littman, uh, all, all Jews on, on both sides, frankly. Um, now, the ACLU sued to ban the menorah, but did not sue to ban the Christmas tree. Christmas tree, clearly a religious symbol. Christ mass, Christ, coming from the Greek, the anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, mass, festival. So yes, it's a national holiday, but it's certainly a religious holiday celebrated by Christians and, and only Christians. Now, in looking at religious displays, what are the, some of the factors that we have to look at? First of all, location. Is it on private property? Is it on public property? Is it on a public forum? Is it inside, outside? Have to look at, at the location. Next, as John mentioned, you take a look at government entanglement. Is the government spending a lot of money to, uh, on the display, on the religious symbol? Uh, is it uh, expending a lot of uh, personnel uh, establishing the, uh, the symbol on, on public property or private property? Uh, and then the question is, is it a religious symbol? And if so, what is the degree of religiosity? So a crash or a cross is not the same thing as a Santa Claus. And a Torah is not the same thing as a dreidel or a patella, which <laughs> actually have religious uh, significance as well. 
right? The dreidel, nes gadol hayasham, noim gimel shim, a great miracle happened. Hey, a great miracle happened there. Batei lekdis are fried in oil to remember the miracle of the oil, but it's not the same, obviously, as Torah. And then finally, what all is being depicted? What do you see? What would, as John mentioned, a reasonable observer conclude in looking at the overall display? And then we have the establishment clause, which uh, John has memorized. I don't, but, <laughs> but to go back again, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So what does that mean? All of us here agree that there should be a separation of church and state. <coughs> but where do you draw the line? There are extremes here. Okay, so you go from one extreme, a, uh, a state church or a theocracy, which obviously the Establishment Clause in part wanted to uh, prohibit. On the other hand, you have a communist society which basically bans religion or religion expression. So where do you draw the line between those two extremes? And was it ever envisioned that the Establishment Clause would provide a complete wall between church and state? Or was there supposed to be an accommodation of church and state? An accommodation and not hostility toward religion. Well, clearly it was never meant to be a complete separation between church and state. We have Thanksgiving. It was not to give thanks to the turkey, maybe thanks for the turkey, but it's to give thanks to God. We have Christmas. It may be a national holiday, but it's a, Chris, it's a Christian re, uh, religious holiday celebrated on December 25, the Christ's birthday. So it may be, again, it may be a national holiday, but it's certainly a, a, a Christian religious holiday celebrated by millions of Christians around the world. We also have uh, paid chaplains in the military. We have very expensive, beautiful chapels at the Armed Forces Academies. We have chaplains opening up legislative sessions. So there was never meant to be a complete separation between church and state and no hostility between the two. So let's take those principles and look at the display in question. Just make the water there, please. Yeah. Right in front of the water. The water. The water. The water. The water. There was never supposed to be. So let's take a look at, at the, these elements. First of all, the location. It's the steps of City Hall. It's a public forum. It's an area where traditionally people go to convey important messages. In our steps of City Hall, we've had African Americans engage in protests and, and displays. We've had a gay rights people. We had, dating myself, Soviet Jewry uh, demonstrations. That's where you go to state your to state your case. We had there are farmers markets. There are all kinds of things that go on at that place, the steps of City Hall. Traditionally, that's where you go to state your, your case, the steps of City Hall. Government entanglement. In this case, 
Chabad owned the menorah, paid for the menorah. City involvement was de minimis. There was, uh, when they put up the tree, the workers put up the uh, menorah at the same time. It takes about an hour. The district court judge said that that's de minimis. There's very little government entanglement. <coughs> Next, is the menorah a religious symbol? Yes. Chabad has always taken the, the position that it's a religious symbol. Our opponents have often said, ha ha, you won, and it's really not a, a, a secular symbol. You won. Chabad won because they said it was a secular No. We never took the position that it was a secular symbol. It's a religious symbol. However, again, we talked about what is the degree of re religiosity. It does not have the same degree, degree of religiosity as, say, a Torah. So a Torah has to be made of certain parchment. The parchment has to be made from a ritually slaughtered kosher animal. That's what a Torah is made of. It has to be written by a scribe in very, <coughs> in, in, in very uh, exact manner. If a Torah falls on the ground, God forbid, the community has to fast for 40 days. You can't throw away a menorah, a, a Torah. A menorah, on the other hand, We've seen menorahs, we've all seen them with, with, with our kids, made out of potatoes, made out of toilet rolls, all kinds of different things that they're made of. And in fact, while I was preparing for today, on Sunday, I've got two WhatsApps depicting menorahs for my grandchildren. Okay. This, is, this is one menorah. Okay. It's made of upside down applesauce containers. And this is another menorah with wicks and candles inside little glass jars with smiley cookies on them. Now is that a religious symbol? Are those religious symbols? Yes, they're religious symbols, but uh, they are not in the same category as a Torah. Let me pass this around. Sure. It went around, Charlie. Oh, it went around already? Good, thanks. So a menorah is not an intrinsically holy object, even though it is definitely a religious symbol. It's also a cultural symbol. Hadassah uses a menorah as one of its uh, symbols. It's also a political uh, symbol. Uh, Israel uses a seven-branch menorah uh, as, a, as a symbol. So the analog, if we were to make an analog to religious symbols in Christianity, the analog would be much more toward a Christmas tree than, than a creche, um, which, as I said before, the, the tree is a religious symbol. A, a, the tree, not only is Christmas a religious holiday, but the Christmas tree is a religious symbol. Again, we go back to Christ's mass, Christmas. And why is it an evergreen tree? Why do they use an evergreen tree for it? because it's forever like Christ. That's why it's an evergreen tree. And millions of Christians sit around their Christmas tree on December 25. Many of them read their Bibles. It's definitely a religious symbol. But the ACLU tried to ban the menorah, but not the Christmas tree. And by the way, as far as lighting the menorah, uh, lighting the menorah is the mitzvah, as Rabbi Altine stated. The lighting of the menorah as a, as a mitzvah occurs in the home and in the synagogue. 
but lighting the steps on the city hall, if I go up and I'm the one lighting the menorah on Kanaka, I've not fulfilled the mitzvah because it's not a mitzvah there to light, to light the menorah there. So then what, what is being depicted there? What is be being depicted there, as you saw in the picture, was a tree, right? A Christmas tree, <coughs> a menorah, and the sign. And what does the sign say? The sign says, salute to liberty. During this holiday season, the city of Pittsburgh salutes liberty. Let these festive lights remind us that we are the keepers of the flame of liberty and our legacy of freedom, signed by Richard S. Caligiri, mayor of the city of Pittsburgh. So, so you can see the, and that's an important, that's the message the city was trying to convey. So is a reasonable observer going to conclude that, that Mayor Richard Caligiri was endorsing Judaism as a state religion? Was he trying to endorse Judaism as the religion of the city of Pittsburgh? Clearly not. The penultimate issue then is, as Justice O'Connor stated, that the relevant and penultimate issue for the Establishment Clause purposes is whether the city of Pittsburgh's display of the menorah, the religious symbol of a religious holiday, next to a Christmas tree and a sign saluting liberty, sends a message of government endorsement of Judaism, or whether it sends a message of pluralism and freedom to choose one's own beliefs. <coughs> Here, the purpose of the display is depicted in the sign itself, a salute to liberty. Furthermore, the effect of banning the menorah would leave just a tree. So that would be a sign of exclusivity. Whereas including the menorah shows that minorities should be included. It's a sign of inclusion, not exclusion. It's a sign, including the menorah, is a sign of inclusion, tolerance, and pluralism. Finally, the banning of the menorah would also violate Chabad's freedom of speech. What do I mean by that? Symbols are a uh, form of speech. So you may re remember like a black armband, that's a, a form of, of speech. During the Vietnam War, people wore, black, people wore black armbands as a form of protest. So the menorah also is a form of speech. And what are the messages of Kanaka? The messages of Kanaka are a universal message of religious freedom for all, which both touches on the freedom of speech clause and the establishment clause. <coughs> it's a universal message. It sends a message of a little light can dispel a lot of darkness in the world. And it's a, it's a message of freedom over oppression. This is also being displayed, as I said, in a public forum. And it's our position that you can't discriminate between non-religious and religious speech. <coughs> the removal of the menorah would convert a message of freedom 
into a banner of exclusivity. So what are we advocating for? We're advocating for a rule of reason and not extremism. We're advocating for messages of tolerance, of pluralism, of religious freedom for all, messages of inclusion, and messages of a little light can dispel a lot of darkness. And ladies and gentlemen, that's a message that belongs in the White House, it belongs in the halls of Congress, and it belongs on the steps of City Hall in the city of Pittsburgh. Thank you, Charlie and John, for their pre uh, presentations of these two uh, of the two sides of the legal arguments. So, as I mentioned earlier, the court uh, will go straight to the Supreme Court that uh, ruled in favor of displaying the menorah. And obviously, the bottom line of the ruling, you know, in halacha we have the same idea. You can have the reasoning for the law, and then you have the actual law. The bottom line is. I don't think anyone has been arrested for putting up the menorah in front of the city uh, county building, which means that um, we're at a place then of an agreement that the bottom line of the law is that we can have the menorah there. But the question is why we can have the menorah there, that um, from my conversation with John and Charlie together in the conference call, I was like, I guess there's two opinions of why the court came to that conclusion. So I was going to say maybe we'll have a third party uh, say it, and they're like, but I see that there is disagreement, so why don't we continue the, the discussion with understanding the ruling that allowed the menorah in front. So um, again, we'll ask Charlie, we'll do this one more brief, uh, five minutes for each to uh, just share with what the, the rationale of the, of the ruling um, was. Charlie, do you want to go first this time? John and I disagree on this, um, and I think part of that disagreement is just on, as Rabbi Altine alluded at the outset, today, that there's so many different opinions, and these judges agree on this part A, uh, section 2B, 3A, 4A, and these judges belong, and, and it's almost impossible to say what is the complete base. I mean, I color-coded this, and I put, I went through here, and these, these judges, and, and it's very difficult. I, I, I think... chart on Wikipedia. <laughs> right. So it, it's really hard, and, and there are sections which allude to uh, a, a lot of discussion of uh, it's permissible because it's secular and so forth. A lot of that is in a section where Judge Blackman, who writes the, the overall opinion, is all by his lonesome in saying those types of things. I think the primary uh, finding is ultimately, and what's, what's generally the courts, uh, I think, have followed after that, is primarily uh, Justice O'Connor's concurring opinion that, that John mentioned before. A and that is the, what you look at is whether or not the state is endorsing a religious message and is it conveying a message of pluralism or, or freedom. And, and what would the reasonable person uh, view the, the display as? A and I was looking at uh, one court of appeals opinion and they talked about a reasonable person. They're talking about somebody who has knowledgeable of all the facts and has a reasoned decision of the whole context of everything. And, and, and that's what I would say is the ultimate uh, ruling that has 
sort of been followed by the courts af after that co court ruling. And by the way, the court ruled a six to three on uh, that the display of the menorah was uh, did not violate the establishment clause, and it was five to four that the crash, uh, the display of the crash, all by its lonesome inside a county building with that uh, Dio, whatever, the glory, the glory to God in the highest, that the huge, uh, you know, uh, statues and so forth, and the depiction of baby Jesus and the, the, the three wise men and the star, and that's a, that, that went over. And if you looked at that display, if you looked at that display, you could conclude that the county was endorsing Christianity. So that's basically why there was a difference between the crash and the menorah. And I would say just, uh, I'm sorry to hear John said he got a lot of uh, hate mail. I, and at first I'm thinking menorah, but, and then I realized they also were battling against the display uh, of the crash. And I would assume that it came from uh, <laughs> the crash, from, from those people and not the Fabudge look. Who knows People weren't signing their names. <laughs> John, I wasn't in Pittsburgh yet, okay? <laughs> Good thing there was no Facebook. <laughs> Charlie and I really don't disagree on what the court decided. And this is where we get into some of the political issues. I mean, I have my own views as to why. But a couple of things I want to respond to uh, that Charlie said in explaining what the court decided. One is he called the Christmas tree a religious symbol. And even if most of us in the room if, would agree that the Christmas tree is a religious symbol, the Supreme Court said it is not. The Supreme Court said the Christmas tree is a secular symbol of the secular aspect of the holiday. Now I might agree, might agree with what Charlie said, but that goes to when we made our decisions of what we were going to challenge and what would weaken our chances of winning on the things everyone agreed was religious. You, you know, because Justice Marshall, during the oral argument, said, why didn't you challenge the Christmas songs? <laughs> and of course the reason was we didn't think we could win and no one would take <laughs> us seriously on the other aspects. And, and the problem with it, the menorah is the religious symbol it's not a religious object like the Torah, but it is the symbol through which the mitzvah is performed, which makes it different from what we might call secular symbols of the holiday, though we can disagree about that tradal and a lot. Why doesn't the Chabad or the city put up a giant dreidel instead of the religious symbol that is associated with prayer? But Justice Blackman, who wrote the main opinion for the court, said this in conclusion about the menorah. The widely accepted view of the Christmas tree as the preeminent secular symbol of the Christmas holiday serves to emphasize the secular component of the message communicated by other elements of an accompanying holiday display, including the Hanukkah menorah. So what I get from that is 
the secular symbol of the Christian holiday was so much more powerful than the religious symbol of the <coughs> Jewish holiday, it turned it into a secular symbol as opposed to a religious symbol. And yes, uh, Justice O'Connor, and that just goes to interpretation. All these justices had their own views and reasons for why they decided the way they did. And my own view, and it's just a personal view, and I expressed it to Charlie and Rabbi Altine uh, when we had a call to set this program up, is that the real reason the uh, Supreme Court decided the menorah aspect of the case the way it did, because it made no sense to our side for the court to require that the nativity scene be taken down and to leave up the menorah. In fact, we thought that would actually stimulate religious hostility. Oh, you, we have to take our symbol down, but you get yours. What, what kind of setup is this? So we never dreamed, or I never did, that the court would split. It was either going to be both had to come down or both could stay. And I think what ended up happening is at this particular time when the Supreme Court decided the case, there were no Jews on the court. There was no person in the conference who could say, this is a religious symbol used for a religious ceremony and you can't do this. And what the effect would be on the street by saying the nativity scene has to come down but the menorah could stay up. And my own view is if there had been a Jewish person on the court that they would not have decided the way they did just as one of the roles Thurgood Marshall played in conference when the court was debating uh, Fourth Amendment cases or race cases, Thurgood Marshall was able to bring to the conference a real-life street sense of what their decision could mean and what impact it would have on the street. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, to um, Charlie and to John for helping get us through this part of it. Um, we have about 15 minutes left in which I want to um, we'll give some time for anyone questions for them. But I first want to just go through a little bit of um, what, what was the Rebbe's thinking. In addition to what I said in the beginning of the class about the, about the importance of spreading the miracle and as I'm glad Charlie actually corrected what I, I, in case it sounded from what I was saying, that you actually fulfill the mitzvah by lighting there. It may not be a mitzvah, but it's certainly part of the holiday celebration of publicizing the miracle. And in addition to the idea of, if you want to call it a gimmick or a, a way of reaching as many people as you can, um, but I think there's a much larger issue that the Rebbe was really trying to um, advocate here with this, um, taking the side, in a sense, of the debate of, which side of the of the clause, which clause is more important, um, or not more important? Uh, how we, how we, uh, like Charlie said, you can go to the extremes. How we take that middle line of allowing, seeing the government allowing religion in public space, not as a way of infringing on our religion, but rather a way of allowing for us to express our religion. The Rebbe was also very, very um, active in trying to. <coughs> get a moment of silence in public schools, which was a way of saying we can't teach religion in a, pri in, a, in a public school, but we can give the children 30 seconds a day that they need to think about 
quietly about something. And the Rebbe would say, they'll come home, they'll ask their parents, what am I supposed to think about? And at least in the 80s, the Rebbe was hoping their parents would say God. But uh, um, the idea of giving them a moment, a moment of silence, so it's finding creative ways where church and state can be kept separate, but yet allow for religion to be expressed in the, in the, in the, uh, in the, in the country. And the argument goes back to, let's go to, to a, uh, a philosophical question. What is, more, what is better for the Jews? Or better for the world, as I, I would actually put it. A religious society or a secular society? Now, from a religious perspective, take a, if you have the pamphlet here, take a look. I'm sorry, it copied page three before the, the in, in order. Take a second page. We have here a reading from the Sifri, which is one of the the uh, rabbinic commenta- um, commentaries on the Talmud, on the Torah. It says, anyone who accepts idolatry is considered to have repudiated the entire Torah. One who repudiates idolatry is considered to have accepted the entire Torah. What does that tell us about? the Torah's view on, on idolatry. In other words, a religion that's not in line with what the Torah believes to be a proper religion. The Sifri seems to be telling us that that is a key factor in whether, in other words, if you're not gonna, if you're gonna go to idolatry, you might as well drop the entire Torah. So we're gonna, the Sifri is obviously talking about Judaism, but let's put it on a bigger picture, just, does uh, Judaism see idolatry? And we could have another argument of whether Christianity is considered idolatry or not. But certainly for a Jewish person, Christianity is not an acceptable belief system. Can we, um, can we, uh, if, if Christianity is what's being um, uh, celebrated around us, is that good for the Jews and its influence on the Jews? This Sifri seems to be saying that, that you're having something that the Jews don't want around, and if that's going to influence and what the nation what the nation's going to look like may not be in line with what Torah wants. But go back to text 6a and let's see what the uh, what the uh, 6b on the cover page. This is from Ibn Ezra. He writes, The first commandment is the foundation upon which all mitzvahs are built, which is the first the first um, commandment being to believe in God, in one God. But you shall not have, after that comes the commandment, that you shall not have other gods. The corruption of one who does not believe in God is greater than the corruption of one who worships idols. As the idol worshippers also believe in God, only they incorporate others with him. Ibn Ezra is arguing that a secular society would end up being a more corrupt society, void of any god, can lead to a worse place than a, a society that may not have the belief in God that Judaism would like to see in the world, but at least have part of it, in other words, an element of it as part of their, their belief system. So the Rebbe very stro- felt very strongly with Ibn Ezra's um, uh, view that a religious America, not a religious state, not a country that is a religious state, but if the people, as, as John said earlier, the individuals, if the country is a place where people believe in God, or as the Rebbe advocated also the seven Noahide laws that the Torah gives for all of humanity, believe in God, not to blaspheme God's name, not to kill, not to steal, not to commit adultery, um, to 
have a proper court system and to uh, um, treat animals with respect. If we have if we have a society that believes in these seven, beginning with the first two, a belief in God and a and uh, not to blaspheme God's name and to you know figure out what that means in one way or the other, but that that's the foundation of the society. Then we have a society that has a had answers to a higher authority, as uh, the saying goes. And when you have a, a society that answers to higher authority, then the 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 uh, morality of the uh, of the of the people, the morals of the people, the entire nation is lifted to a is 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 going on a pro, in a better direction. So of course, if we have any religious, if if the if the uh, there's the separation of, of religion and of state and religion, but church and state, but yet at the same time, can that find a way to still allow for there to be a way to educate people about a higher authority or what we call um, uh, the creator of the world and its and its leader, and so as a result of that, allowing saying, well, if you can allow us to, if we can find a way, and again, the Rebbe wasn't trying to challenge the Constitution, the Rebbe's argument was, as the Supreme Court allowed, that there should be a way that government, that with the separation of church and state, to still allow for there to be expression of religion by the individuals in the most public way possible to help encourage everyone finding a, a direction in which they can feel comfortable in recognizing and certain in a service of God. So I just want to take another minute or two just to read here um, on the next page. This is a, a, a uh, excerpt of a letter from the Rebbe about supporting um, uh, government aids for uh, private schools or religious schools, parochial schools. They argue, these are those that argue against um, providing private schools from the 1960s. They argue that such support is against the Constitution. This is a strange argument for even one who believes that the Constitution should not should take precedence over the Torah learning of Jewish children and that no effort should be made to amend it in this regard would certainly agree that if the government which certainly knows what the Constitution says agrees to provide this support and that there is no conflict here. Is it their test, task to instruct the Supreme Court of the United States on constitutional law? This is argument was why are the Jews standing up against what the government is allowing. If the government says it's not constitutional law, so then we have to figure out a way, it, can it be done or not? But if the government is allowing for a menorah to be placed, or in this case of this letter, for aid to private schools, why get in the way? They also argue that if Jewish schools receive the support, then Christian schools will receive it as well, with the result that one will be causing the strengthening of the Avodah Zarah, idol worship, which is forbidden to non-Jews under the Noahide laws commanded by God to the whole of humanity. Therefore, it is forbidden by Jewish law for Jews to accept the financial support under the principle do not place a stumbling block before the blind. This is the argument that some people say, you're going to put up a menorah, that means you're going to put up a tree. Better let's take the menorah down so the tree won't be up. The rabbi argues in public schools, many of the subjects are taught in a way that both directly and indirectly cause the student to conclude that the world has no master which is a small step from completely denying of the existence of the creator of the world. Such denial is certainly a violation of the Noahide laws, according to all opinions. It may, in fact, be preferable that non-Jewish children are educated in the Christian schools rather than in public schools. As it is known, a complete heretic is worse than an idol worshiper. And I don't want to read this inside, but in the next, uh, the next piece, and only has uh, some of it in the English and Hebrew, it has the full, it's from a German rabbi, 
um, who, who discusses how one, a, a visiting rabbi in, in the early 1930s came to Berlin and started saying that, your secu- that the secular nature of this country is going to bring uh, the moral, uh, it has, is going to have terrible uh, um, uh, impact on how the people behave. And he writes, I was so offended by how he's uh, attacking our, 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 uh, our way of thinking. And unfortunately, we know where that led. Um, he concludes, this is his article, his writing. Um, I do want to just uh, pick up uh, one more uh, interest um, piece. I'm not going to read it inside because we're out of time, but in text nine there. There's another argument that's always made is, but eventually, if we're going to allow religion to come into the country, unfortunately, we know what religion did to the Jews over the years. The Rebbe's argument there was that it wasn't, it's not religion who did it. It were the people who did it which means the people that were tyrants and, and evil people used religion or allowed the religion to influence them, however you want to argue it, but used religion to fight others and to, and to uh, oppress, oppress the Jews and unfortunately kill us in masses. But if we're in a society where we're in good, in good you know, we have a democratic uh, um, a country and a country which... Um, the Rebbe would always refer to the United States as a Medina Shal Chesed, a kind country that we live in, one that has a constitution that allows us to express um, our religion and to live it without, with the establishment clause that forbids, uh, forbids the government from getting in the way of our religion, then the fact that there's religious people around is not going to oppress the people. It is the, it is the nature of the people that are oppressing, not the religion. So just to conclude in the end of text 9, in medieval times, the world suffered from an excess of religious zeal and intolerance. In our day, the world is suffering from an excessive indifference to religion or even from a growing materialism and atheism. So it's not, the, it's not the, what, we're, what was going to be used as the, it's the tool that's going to be used, but it's the people that make that decision. So just to summarize what, we're, what the Rebbe is uh, pointing out and his point of view and why it was so important to have a menorah in public space is because a, creating a, a society that believes in God is not just good for the Jewish people and it's not just important for us to be able to celebrate Hanukkah, but in fact that's what the world as a whole would benefit from. It can, a place that has a instead of being everything about self materialism what do I get you know what, what do I make, get out of it but rather what do I how do I um, use this as a, a purpose of service of God my life kill don't kill well I have to answer to God steal don't steal I have to answer to God if that becomes a foundation then that becomes an allowance for a much better society for all of us to live in